0: This is Storage Unpacked. Subscribe at
1: storageunpacked.com.
2: This is Chris Evans with the Storage Unpacked podcast, and today I'm joined by Ryan and Brandon from Cumulo. Guys, how are you doing?
0: Great, great to be here. Thanks. Fantastic, thank you.
2: Excellent. So um, take a second and uh, introduce yourself, and then we'll dive into our topic of the conversation.
0: Right. Hi. I'm Ryan Ferris. I'm the Vice President of Product and Product Marketing here at Cumulo. I've been here for about a year now. It's great to be here. Thank you.
1: I'm Brian Whitelaw, I'm VP of Cloud and Strategic Partnerships here at i Uh been here since February, but before this, uh with AWS for three years and Delba before that.
2: Excellent. Okay, so we had a little briefing just recently, Ryan, and we were, you know, we we're talking about lots of the challenges of actually moving data around in the cloud, especially in hybrid cloud models. And that's effectively our conversation for today. We're going to talk about the challenges of managing data in and out of the cloud. And I think we'll have a lot to talk about. And but really it'd be good to maybe set the scene here about what you guys are seeing happening in the industry. Ryan, you know, what are you seeing in terms of what people want as you know, customers and how are they moving their data and managing it in the cloud today?
0: Yeah, particularly for cloud or on-prem, I think some of the industry's trends that we see are pretty similar from customer to customer or enterprise to enterprise. Uh, some of our largest prospects and customers uh, talk about the difficulty of managing file at scale, particularly over multiple regions, and that dispersion and file management of, say, 10 petabytes of data, uh, if it's on completely on-prem, or if it's some of it's on-prem and some of it's in the cloud, uh, or if all that file data is in the cloud, to manage that scale uh, is really difficult. And we hear that time and time again, particularly if data centers are starting with a couple petabytes uh, and you have that, that silo and all this gravity toward one centralized location and the data owner really is desirous of spreading that out to multiple regions or where that data is, the, is, is most needed and where it becomes the hottest or maybe where the, uh, the most performance is required in some distant region at the edge. That's a big problem for file. And if we compare that a little bit to kind of if cloud native applications are built from the ground up in the cloud, those are usually problems that, that the customer doesn't have to deal with because data distribution and dispersion have been solved by hyperscalers. But for file, it's a big problem. Uh, and customers are asking Cumulo uh, over the last several years, particularly to build more functionality and more management capability to uh, manage bidirectionality and, and geo and, and data distribution.
2: So Brandon, I'm I'm sort of interested in the workflow side of this. You know, it's great to put data in different places and then think, okay, sometimes I need to move it. But I have a feeling that we see more complex workflow now going on within customers where data might be created in one location, needed in some other location, and moved around quite a lot rather than, you know, necessarily being quite static. You know, what's your sort of view on that?
1: Yeah, what I've seen in the past was customers really had an or option in where to deploy a workload. They were going to deploy it on-prem or in the cloud. And that, you know, we went through a time there for a while where customers were cloud first, saying, let's first try to deploy it in cloud, and then if can't, we'll put it on-prem. And what we're seeing customers really find the balance across the two uh constructs today and wanting to say actually i want to be a little bit more nuanced than that i want to be what what i call cloud smart so find the right balance of where at what point in the life cycle of the workload it makes more sense to have that data to fuel certain characteristics that are optimal for that stage it might be starting on premises for great latency for artists to edit and animate but then when it's time to go render i want that burst uh, you know, agility of cloud compute available to me to go finish that project, right? And so through that one singular workflow of content creation, you can have the data now needing to be in two places. Uh, previously, the difficulty with that is, especially in the unstructured file world, you, you had customers challenged with just the, the mass amount of data to move, and then how to not, not create a tremendous amount of complexity in automating that movement or getting visibility and access to that data from both sides or the unpredictability sometimes, you know, a script comes in three weeks late for an animated feature and now all my time schedules are compressed and what do I do and, and so I I think we're, we're, we're trending towards as customers actually finding that, you know, sheer copying of data is not always necessary, nor the most optimal approach, especially for unpredicted access. And they're looking really to be able to unify the data plane between on-prem and cloud to make it so that uh, visibility and accessibility of the data could be available to any users or applications or compute on either side of that construct at any time without necessarily having to plan, schedule, and replicate ahead of time for everything.
2: Okay, I, we'll, we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk about some of that, you know, scheduling or, or how some of that presentation stuff works in a moment. I just wanted, um, uh, double-check something with Ryan here, and that's really around the side of, you know, unstructured versus structured. You Both of you have very quickly mentioned unstructured content and obviously file very specifically. It was always sort of assumed that unstructured is where we're seeing the growth in data. But, you know, is that accelerating? Are we seeing, every, you know, is it like 99% unstructured nowadays compared to 50-50, you know, 10 years ago? Do you see like a, a massive rise in unstructured and only unstructured?
0: Yeah. I I think the industry trends and the data that we have suggest that around 90% of data is unstructured in nature, uh, roughly give or take maybe a couple percentage points on either side. And uh, unstructured data is doubling at a super just extremely rapid rate. So uh, if you look at Gartner or some of the other industry analysts, they might say that something like a doubling of, uh, of data every 18 to 20 months and that's a stat that is easy to cite, but it's hard to conceive of just how much that is, especially if you're talking about you know, unstructured data on-premises, 100 exabytes, that actually doubling uh, at a rate of 18 to 20 months is just an extremely and overwhelming uh, problem for enterprises. But as trends suggest, that's around the rate of data growth that we see for unstructured data. So between structured and unstructured, the problem specifically is so much le- more leaning toward... Uh, unstructured data.
1: I think furthermore, the interesting thing is the types of workloads being focused on from a structured and unstructured basis have shifted over time, which is that before unstructured data was kind of your back office IT home directories and file shares in most enterprises. And maybe in key vertical segments like media, I mentioned, it could be a lot more because at the end of the day, when you're producing an animated film, it is just data that you're producing as your product. But for the most part, it's been kind of considered tier two, tier three archive backup and general purpose file. And what we're seeing now is that the most mission critical and bleeding edge uh, differentiators for companies are actually based on unstructured data, fueling kind of the AI, ML, generative AI, all these types of things are using unstructured data to do that by by uh, default. And, and ultimately, the, the challenge, of course, is that, the vast majority of that data, right, is sitting on premises in customers' data centers. But the the environment to get the most out of it—that is, the compute, the models, the open source tooling, the agility of uh, resources, and even other ISV partnered applications to that they want to test out and try and de-risk in that process—that's all sitting, for the most part, in cloud. So we have this this big kind of construct imbalance. And it's not trivial to say, well, just copy all your data into the cloud and then, um, you know, run on, run on those models. Now you're paying for things twice. Usually at multitudes more. It's never the real time, you know, actual uh, data because it's a, it's a point in time copy and keeping up with that. And so anyways, the point is, is that there's uh, an opportunity, I think, to, to close the chasm between those two worlds and help customers get their data in proximity to that environment to get the most out of it so do you
2: think people are creating stuff on-prem more and then moving it to the cloud creating it more in the cloud you know can we say where all of this data is being created and and accessed more i mean you just mentioned there brandon that you know you see people moving stuff into the cloud to gain the benefit of the compute that's available there but it's interesting for me to wonder whether a lot of this stuff has been created elsewhere and then moved in or whether it is being created in the cloud in the first place
1: I think it all just comes down to the applications. So legacy applications are mostly on-prem. They're still generating a tremendous amount of data. Most of the historical memory of the enterprise is its data sitting on-prem from legacy applications. Next-gen applications created in cloud, of course, are creating data in cloud. But because they were created in the cloud in the first place, they were generally built with the constructs and uh, advantages of, of the, the systems that already existed there. So, you know, if you look at the size of block and object in the cloud, there, 95% of the data is block and object in the cloud. Less than 5% is file. And it's not necessarily because there's anything inherently wrong with file. It's just that for early cloud-native application development, those were the constructs that were, you know, most appropriate. If you're going to go build the next uh, Instagram, you want to go use a geodistributed object system. <laughs> Like it's really good for that, billions of users, read only access to data, like you don't modify a, an image once you upload it to Instagram, right? So you don't need file constructs in that in that situation. But surprisingly to me in my time at AWS, the most common engagement from a technical remediation process from the specialty team into storage was helping customers move an application off of object or block storage into a file system because there is a, there's a place for it. There's a balance between those three and right now, users, because they only know the two big hammers between objects and, and block, they they use those and then ask, you know, why isn't it performing as I expected? You know, why is it, Why aren't I getting the latency and transaction per second performance out of S3? Well, it wasn't built for that. You should use a file system. Or why can't I share data more easily on you know EBS? Well, because it's not shared storage. You need a file system. That's exactly what it was meant for. And so I, I think you know on premises. I think the world kind of knows that the balance between block and file and to some extent object, but in the cloud world, they really just know block and object and are, are starting to understand where, where file comes in and where it could be used more. And then, you know, again, back to your question, I think it depends on where the application was created and then whether or not they're wanting to, um, now get more nuanced in that workload of, of regardless of where the data is created, where do I take advantage of the best resources, the best time for that, that particular workload?
2: yeah that's interesting, isn't it? so I think I think um looking at, back at what you just said there and thinking that through, I hadn't really thought of that in i guess in that in those terms in the sense that people tend to see block and object as the as the main cloud platforms now theoretically, Ryan, you know if we're moving into the public cloud, there are potential advantages if you've got a good file solution in there. My experience is that perhaps the ones that were implemented initially weren't as fully featured and functional as as maybe customers would have wanted. And certainly some of the vendors that are getting their products integrated into those platforms directly, I look at the price and I see something that looks super expensive, to actually buy and maybe that's putting people off. I don't know, but you know, there's gotta be some good advantages if you can get a good file system in the public cloud to deploying, you know, in the cloud based on some of those things that Brandon's already mentioned.
0: Yeah, the proportionality of data as Brandon also mentioned, is just so tilted or skewed toward being on-prem and we see this massive opportunity to move more file-based workloads in the cloud. And I, I think if you boil those down to sort of three primary blockers I would state uh, they're likely one of the following. Uh, One is that you have this perhaps large legacy NAS sitting on-prem that houses not just one application, but maybe that's 20 or 30 applications across many petabytes. And that's an overwhelming thing to just consider how long it would take to re-architect every single application to speak object. And that might be a blocker in and of itself, just the overwhelming nature of looking at a specific workload or a couple applications and then determining the cost of rewriting that application and re-architecting it to be cloud ready. Uh, That's number one. Number two is that there's a a big cognitive burden on the data owner or the application owner or the architect uh, to try to envision how much it's going to cost at scale in the cloud running a file workload. And one of the reasons why is that you have to be fairly intimate with the API calls and sort of uh, what that expresses and how that, how that looks like in the cloud. It's the number of reads, transactional writes. Uh, what does that actually look like? What am I going to get charged for on the transactional level, at the data at rest level, and even moving the stuff in and out of the cloud? So cost is really difficult to forecast uh, and try to forecast out a year or two when it comes to file workloads in the cloud. That's a big blocker. Do you want to add on to that, Brandon? You have a experience there in
1: AWS. <laughs> the interesting thing is that you know customer I came across time and time again customers faced with a really difficult uh, choice to make related to moving workloads into the cloud. If if it seemed interesting, from again, could be elastic compute characteristic, could be uh, availability or, or durability characteristics, or some other reason that they felt compelled to move that workload towards the cloud. It could just be an ideological transformational kind of goal for the company, right? But at the end of the day, they were faced with some big challenges on those workloads. One, either you you spend a couple of years with uh, developers to rewrite an application you build on prem to be cloud native, and that usually meant, to Ryan's point, rewriting it to object. That's not trivial. That's difficult. And by the way, it's 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 uh, per, you know that that time and resource could have been spent on customer facing, you know. F- features and functionality so you're kind of reinventing the wheel to to re-platform it or the other option is that you kind of lift and shift the application into the existing file systems that were there and to that point you you end up paying three to 12 times the price per terabyte per month to to run those in those existing in to those file systems that were there usually by the way with additional compromises laid layered on so Maybe you couldn't run a single scale-up multi-protocol system in the cloud because by the way, those those don't exist from any native cloud vendor uh, that is their own file systems. So you had to break the workloads apart and now you're managing multiple different systems and it's more complex and maybe you're limited also in performance and scale and enterprise feature functionality. All of these things are, are gapped in some way, shape or form depending on which file service you're looking at. And so you you end up with this... Uh, fairly intolerable environment where you know it's it's definitely not on on par with what you are used to on-prem with a proper scale-out enterprise multi-protocol file system potentially more complex potentially more limited in enterprise feature functionality or scale or uh uh, performance and then to to add you know (laughs) cherry on top is oh and it's also multitudes more expensive so you know A lot of customers were saying, look, I will just move the applications that are top priority, that are worth the development time, uh, and that works for the first few. But it reminds me of a a, a CIO of a large uh, pharmaceutical company that basically said, look, uh, at the pace we're going at, if I want to get my on-prem NAS moved to the cloud, I'll be here for the next 3,000 years because I have thousands of applications that are writing against that system. I'm not gonna go take them one by one by one and with a dev team for a few years and rewrite them. Like, it's just never gonna happen. So this this path worked up until this point for the first 40 apps, but I I can't go beyond this. There's gotta be a better way.
2: I thought of one really obvious thing I'd never thought about before, which you sort of, you brought me to there, Brandon, which, um, and that's, when I look at what cloud native might mean, um, it's a, You know, you, you look at, say, um, block storage and you just think, well, block storage is definitely just connected to um, virtual instances, tends not to be replicated outside of that environment, very, very, very fixed and local. Object is there with the benefit of being um, completely universal and ubiquitous in the fact that you can access it anywhere you can get to the endpoint. When you look at the implementations of file within the public cloud, they tend to be very equivalent to the way that things would have been done on-premises there. One machine replicating to another machine for data protection. So you've got point-to-point replication of data in very specific silos sitting in, in specific locations. It's not got the same ubiquitous nature of access that you have for object storage. And anybody who's thinking, well, I want to write something that runs in the cloud is possibly going to expect that the endpoint they want to access should be fairly universal to them and it shouldn't be oh it's running in that data center so you can't use that we'll have to create another file system over there and and now you end up with that spider's web of all sorts of stuff going everywhere surely if you're going to do this right it should look like that cloud native um, environment and you should be able to access your data wherever you want to
1: yeah i think that's where we'll see going forward a tremendous focus on being able to have global accessibility and availability to data, regardless of of where users and endpoint applications are, but still with the expectation of performance that comes from a file system. That's the have your cake and eat it too kind of trick there, right? Object storage is great, but it's it's built with the expectation of WAN client-side latency. Like 300 milliseconds of latency is perfectly tolerable to a, a random person on their cell phone you know, traveling around to look at an image, they won't even notice really. But it's not acceptable to a high performance uh, application that's expecting an NFS or SMB endpoint. That is, uh, you know, anything beyond five is usually not acceptable. And so 300 is just off the charts. And so I think the trick is to try to say, how do you get the elasticity, the scale, the durability of object in the cloud, but with the performance features and protocol compatibility to existing applications, so you don't have to rewrite them, of a file system. And I, I don't really think anybody who has cracked the nut yet on that. Uh, we've seen you know, most file systems are built on block storage in the cloud and come with the, the cost and, and limited scale and performance characteristics of that. Um, or they kind of lazy load up from object. And so it's not really reading off the object layer. It's just kind of pulling it up, staging it up when necessary, but you still have to run it in the file system. And then t- to your point, all, all of these constructs today are really limited to just users or applications in the local area network of where that file system is. So you're either on-prem in that building or you're in cloud in that region, yeah. but it's not from all to all anywhere. And I think
2: that's what I'd want. And looking at, you know, how we implement that sort of m- mobility, if you like, Ryan, I think that's probably the best way to describe it, you know, how are we going to get past that? What are the strategies we're going to see the industry developing to stop us having to do those expensive migrations where we say, well, in order to use that data, we've got to build copy it here first and all that sort of stuff. What are the strategies we're going to see?
0: Well, again, kind of comparing it to hyperscaler and and cloud-like functionalities, uh, I spent a lot of time in Amazon as well, just like Brandon. And I'm reminded that if you build cloud native applications and you start with either an S3 bucket or a blob store in Azure, um, you have all these fantastic capabilities at your fingertips. So an S3 bucket can easily geo disperse and, and send objects out to the edge, which can be consumed via either video streaming or even Slack and things like that. So cloud-native applications take those things for granted. For file, uh, well, Cumulo is actually building something fairly similar to a CDN. So declaring something of that kind of looks like an origin, but really that could be an NFS export, it could be an SV share, it can be something that is a massive repository, which you can now distribute to the edge at will. And instead of replicating or duplicating and adding another copy elsewhere in a different region and paying for that cost, Really, I think it's just caching on demand, uh, which is an algorithm that is very well known, that algorithm works. That's kind of the, the architectural tenet that we're chasing. And that gives users the flexibility of, of really getting, the, getting to that data efficiently over the WAN link with Cumulus prefetching and Cumulus efficient way of, of, of transferring blocks to where they're needed. And then caching only what's really needed and required at the edge or that remote data, or the, sorry, that remote region. So I, I think it's more of like um, kind of building on these hyperscale or fundamentals that have that have existed for quite some time for years now and duplicating uh, uh, similar functionalities, bringing them to file.
2: It sounds like the first thing you would you would need to really think about is a separation of that physical data from that logical view of the data, because you've just talked about caching there. And my first thought is, well, I'd like to be able to see a visualization of that data set, whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. a file system whatever, you know, namespace. I'd still like to be able to see it wherever I am. It doesn't necessarily I want mean I'm gonna access everything in that file system or namespace yeah. all the time. So it sounds to me like the first requirement would be the namespace must be visible to wherever I want it to be visible. And if I can do that, that's my starting point.
0: Yeah, I think the customer experience that we are striving for and the, the ultimate customer experience is to present that directory tree or that that thing that sits locally on your file system, whether it's you're doing a directory listing in a a shell or you're browsing via SMB a a directory listing over Windows, uh, you're seeing remote data as if it were local. And you have all the optionality to access that data, whether it's locally cached uh, or if it's anywhere else in the world. It's always accessible at any time. And whenever you want to access it, you have the, the optimum performance in pulling those bytes back to where they're most needed. And then they're cached indefinitely so that you have, you have the performance that you need when you need it. But yeah, that notion of presenting uh, remote data as if it were local is a core kind of UX or, or CX and customer experience that we're going for.
1: Yeah, and where I've seen customers in the past kind of struggle with this without having a file system that facilitates it natively is trying to just connect SMB shares, for example, over a a VPN into the cloud. (laughs) And look, that protocol obviously was not built with that in mind. It was built actually before cloud even existed um, and doesn't tolerate the latency, packet loss, et cetera. It's just a really bad customer experience in that situation. So what you really want instead is to say, hey, file system, behind the scenes, under the covers, move data on a very WAN-optimized, non-SMB connection, right? Something that really built for a WAN data flow uh, between these two sites, very seamlessly and optimally, without the user ever having to know, consider, or care about that. They just see the same Windows home drive as they've always gone to on the network share. They don't need to know that the data is local or not local. Um, ultimately, give me local-like performance Uh, to remote data and therefore empower collaboration, empower the ability to not have to copy data around the world to now the ever-future distributed data sets and workforces that we have, right? Um, Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what position you're in, you know, we can't just put everyone in the same building anymore and say use the local area network to get to your data. The, the world's forever dis- distributed. So we need, data. We need uh, data systems to help facilitate accessibility and visibility to that data wherever it may be.
0: I think uh, the use case around archiving is really powerful here as well. And being able to present that remote data in this massively cold archive. And when we think about primary storage and the cost of primary storage and how much data is just sitting on a hot, expensive tier of storage when it's really not being used. That's so much waste and so much expense that uh, that the user has an opportunity to reduce. And so uh, when we're talking about global namespace and and kind of different ways of managing data over geos, having that very large primary archive being active and accessible at any time is also a really powerful industry trend and kind of a powerful expression of how to overlay a global namespace on something that presents uh, accessibility and into an active archive. And I think that what, what that means to some of our, our customers, particularly in like PACS vendor-neutral archive where it's a popular use case that when data gets cold, it gets cold very quickly, and it stays cold for a long time. And you can imagine that if a patient gets a CAT scan or a, a, whatever a kind of a radiology scan they're getting, after the radiologist does that work, well, that image might actually be stored for a couple decades, depending on their age, uh, their age range. And so that cold data is really expensive, but the radiologist might actually need it a couple years later. And they don't want to wait either a couple hours or maybe a couple days or even minutes to get at that data so that they can perform their study. So, archive and global namespace and accessibility is a big part of this story and maintaining that accessibility at any time for a much, much lower cost.
2: So I've I've boiled it down to three things. This might be very simplistic, but I'm going to try. going to try and go for it anyway. I see the the first one as being the presentation layer, the ability to have a global namespace where I can see my data where it wherever it happens to be, but I might not necessarily need to access it. I see the second one as being the endpoint that says this is how I actually allow my customer to have access to that data and it might be like the SMB protocol or it might be NFS but but that endpoint is acting locally for the person who wants to access it there it isn't necessarily an extended endpoint across the network it's literally a local endpoint and then there's the third one which is the back-end replication between nodes that are delivering those endpoints and that metadata to make sure that the data gets placed wherever I want it to be, make it most efficient for my cost savings so if i suddenly decide like you've just mentioned ryan i have a whole load of data that goes cold very quickly i still want to make sure i can see it and access it but physically i actually might push it to a cloud tier which is the cheapest possible storage for me and all of those things need to go on in the background that's basically the three things i can see that are my you know sort of key criteria at this point and it sounds to me like that's not being delivered in the cloud directly, but that's gonna need vendors like yourselves to deliver.
0: Yeah, customers like choice, they like flexibility, they like economic agility. Uh, they don't really like being locked into one paradigm or if it's if it's only cloud storage that is being offered or if it's only on-prem, I think they're hungry for more choice and more flexibility and means to move data wherever they want it at a much lower cost point for file storage, absolutely.
1: I think to add to that as well, the... You know the other approaches that are in the market today are really kind of a, a duct tape on top of an existing platform right they're taking a a secondary layered technology that sits on top of the existing platforms and trying to tape them together and the challenges with that ultimately are that you end up having now kind of a du- dual layer system to deal with and and triage and support and it kind of mutes the underlying file system data services because now clients are really only presenting through the top layer to the, um, and can't get access to that. And then, in addition, it usually is not the robustness of a of a you know a, a very mature, stable enterprise-grade, mission-critical file system in performance, in scale, in data services. All it's doing is providing the global namespace functionality. So. The, again, <laughs> with all things, customers don't like compromises and trade-offs. And you know, up until this point, I think they've been forced into that one way or another. We ultimately hope to try to change that to say we, we want to be able to have that be a core functionality of the file system on an already you know, leading, mature, capable file system that can support the most critical workloads as necessary, both in the cloud and on-prem, but with this capability added to it.
2: Okay, Ryan. So, how are you doing that? Then, how are your te- how's your technology doing exactly that?
0: Yeah, one of the critical capabilities that Brandon talked about a little bit earlier, uh, and a means to give customers more choice, is that we talked about a couple of these problem statements around. Hey, you might desire to move more workloads in the cloud, but you might find that it's just cost prohibitive. Uh, and one of the reasons that it's cost prohibitive is that you're kind of uh, stuck with choice of siloed data. So. Uh, you might see a popular vendor, a cloud file storage service, and you might see that, oh, I'm limited either in volume or in my burst capacity, or I'm limited in some, maybe it's actually a data service that I'm limited. limited. Uh, what Cumulo wants to bring to market, and we see this massive opportunity to present true elasticity in the cloud. And that in, in its purity, that just doesn't exist today. So the ability to scale out in the cloud where that performance is needed, whether that's uh, a uh, data science-based workload, or an oil and gas-based workload, or an M&E-based workload, uh, a lot of our enterprise customers are desirous of that specific thing. Like, hey, even if I need 60 days worth of, of data sitting in the cloud, or maybe it's, it's stored there indefinitely, allow me to pay for that burst capacity that I'm only using for short periods of time. And those periods of time might be either predictable or unpredictable. So in the case of an M&E workload, just for example, well, maybe there's a, a strong hypothetical for ME burst rendering farms that need to use all the compute that they can get their hands on for, say, a 45 or 60 day period until the project or the film is done. A cloud is a, The cloud is a, a great place to do that, but you can't pre-provision all of it and save money. You just can't do it. But one of the things that Cumulus is bringing to market is, is just that, the ability to use the throughput that you need and only pay for that period of time in which you're bursting kind of... Above what we would uh, uh, what we would describe as our free tier, so that's one thing. And then another thing is that doubling down on this uh, this notion of global namespace, having that seamless movability, and we talked about having to uh, having the the ability to access remote data as if it were local. Well, if a scientist uh, or a radiologist, or maybe it's a, an artist needs that data. Just having, um, you know, without talking to a data owner or an administrator or building another application, just grabbing the data themselves and and transferring what they need to get their job done. That's another big differentiator that we're bringing to market.
1: Yeah, I think the interesting aspect is that um, kind of like the example I talked about before where customers faced with applications. Do I go through the effort of, you know, spending years rewriting the application to be optimized for cloud? And, and what does that mean from a a data construct perspective from an agility perspective, compute perspective, or do I just lift and shift and kind of keep it the same and come with the trade-offs that come with it? What we have done ultimately is, is done that hard work, hopefully to avoid our customers to need to do that, which is spend the years to fundamentally rewrite uh, the back end of, of Cumulus file system to be cloud native in every construct. That is using object storage as the persistence layer And then having a machine learning optimized cache prefetch preemptive read layer go up into local ephemeral disk that can be dynamically scaled on the fly. So ultimately that same uh, auto scaling on the compute, that same elasticity, durability and, and scale characteristics of object, but with the performance of file all being brought together to get the best of both worlds and avoiding ultimately our customers having to go through the decision of rewriting every application one by one. Instead, we do it once, and then you just benefit from the outcomes.
0: Yeah, just to kind of double down and double click on a couple of those things. Uh, the disaggregation between compute and blob storage buys us a couple things as well. Uh, number one, that's one of the reasons for that's kind of how we can reduce our cost structure and our price point down to near object storage levels. So the price of file will go down significantly on November 9th. That's our upcoming release date. And number two, uh, just as powerful, if not more, depending on the customer, that ability that Brandon was just describing in scaling out and back down elastically is pretty massive. And when you think about how a, a cloud native application or an architect might take that for granted, like AWS and EC2 has allowed auto scaling groups to function for many years. Well, uh, the equivalent or something similar just doesn't ex- it doesn't exist in the cloud yet. So over time and in the fullness of time, uh, the cumulo experience of bursting in the cloud and using the throughput that you need will be much more akin and similar to an ASG or an auto scaling group, where it's either demand based or it's a, a manual call that that instructs cumulo, all right, I need fifteen gigabytes a second in twenty minutes from now please provide me that. Uh, That that rendering job or that throughput that is required is now satisfied and then you can go back down. And the surface area of that burst is the only thing that the customer pays for. Another, Another thing that we're super excited about, and it's truly horizontal, it's not one specific use case that this is tailored for, it just sort of spans all industry verticals that wish to do file workloads in the cloud
2: so ryan looking back at all of all of that and thinking it all through i think i'm starting to see you know that there is a real a demand for file but really there's a different way of doing it and you've presented some really interesting things about your technology and some things that meet you know for me to go away and actually sit down and think these are sort of the requirements i'd want of any other vendor who you know was was building an equivalent solution um but i believe you've just gone through a, a launch of a new set of features for your um, your platform. Do you want to just take us through those for a second?
0: Yes, the Scale Anywhere launch, the thing that we've been working toward for so many months now, uh, the product and engineering team, the whole company is behind this. It's a massive launch for us. Uh, November 9th is our big date. And on November 9th, we'll write about and make a lot of hay about two specific things. One is the evolution of Azure Native Cumulo. It was originally shipped on April of earlier this year. Uh, so this service already exists you can discover it uh, through the azure marketplace azure native Cumulos is is, uh, coming up with a couple of major uplifting features one is a big uh, price drop to 30 dollars per terabyte per month Uh, the presence of elasticity and some other things that you can read through the portal so it's basically an evolution of this service a major evolution of this service and then number two uh, global namespace which we talked at length about Uh, we're going live with global namespace and announcing that And particularly, we already have customers running it and kicking the tires and and testing it out. Uh, So there are a little bit more with this launch, but those are the two biggest things. And the call to action, I think, for uh, for your podcast listeners is to visit cumulo.com so that you can read a little bit more in depth. Uh, There's some live videos that we've recorded. There's some explainers uh, and some good links to the TCO or Total Cost of Ownership Calculator and other assets where the customers can uh, learn more if they wish.
1: I would say for me, what's so exciting about this is after years on the in an on-premises vendor at Dell, having customers beat me over the head asking for a proper enterprise-grade file system in the cloud, and then three more years in AWS, getting beaten over the head by customers saying why, why, why are all these options kind of piecemeal and not the right uh, feature functionality, scale, performance, and oh my gosh, look at the price. We're finally bridging those two worlds and satisfying both sets of needs. All this pent-up demand, this 100x bytes that sits on-prem with a, a you know actual cloud-native, cloud-optimized file system without compromises in scale, performance, capability, and most importantly, with at or better than on-premises total cost of ownership which is by the way about 80% less than any other file system in the cloud. Now customers don't have any compromises. They can ultimately just place the data where it needs to be the most optimal for their needs, access it from anywhere through global namespace as if it was local and get the best of both worlds in a true hybrid topology for the first time.
2: Perfect. Well, um I'll put all of the uh, the links and everything you've just given me into the show notes and we'll make sure that all of that's available so people, as usual, can go online to the webpage for this particular episode and they'll find all those links, including the stuff that relates to your launch and all of the um, the videos and stuff you've mentioned already, Ryan and uh, Brandon. But um, for now, thanks for your time. It's been a really interesting conversation. It's certainly got my mind thinking about how we need to re- sort of review this and, and think about file systems in the cloud. And I appreciate your time and look, look forward to catching up with you again in the future.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Take care.
0: You've been listening to Storage Unpacked. For show notes and more, subscribe at storageunpacked.com. Follow us on Twitter at Storage Unpacked or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Storage Unpacked podcast.
1: You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.